Did you know that there are over 65 million Gen Xers, yet so few financial advisors focus on Gen X? Why? It's because you aren't rich. Yet. Welcome to the Gen X Money Advisor with Michael Labus, certified financial planner, certified college funding specialist, and founder of Gen X Wealth Partners. This podcast focuses on the specific needs of Gen Xers by a Gen Xer. Get ready to explore topics that will help you get your retirement on track, maximize your dollar towards your child's education, and successfully manage aging parents. We will even sprinkle in a little health and wellness, travel and leisure, and time and stress management. Come and experience the expertise of Michael and his special guests who focus on enhancing the quality of your life today and in the future. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Gen X Money Advisor. I'm Michael Labus, your host here today. And today is a continuation of our last episode, which focused on helping our parents add purpose to their lives, uh, how to handle questions about their aging, and then ultimately how we can help them leave a legacy. And today's episode is going to be focusing on the financial impact of long-term care. And that topic, I believe, warrants its own episode here today. And it's actually one of the biggest concerns that I have for the continued strength, financial strength of America. And it's the increasing cost and need for long-term care. American, we're living a lot longer than we planned for. Social security, as we know, was established in 1935. At that time, our life expectancy was about 62, right? And that's actually the age that you can start to collect. So that's interesting. And if you look a little further into the future, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, they were established in 1965. And at that time, life expectancy was about 70. So you can see it was on the rise. And as we sit here today, it's at 79, and it's probably still rising. You know, the problem is that these programs weren't designed for this, and they're going to need reform if they're going to survive. We're all aware of Social Security's deficiencies, but Medicare and Medicaid, they also have their own deficiencies. Uh, and one of the problems is that we have an aging population, and at the same time, we have a decreasing birth rate. So there's lots of issues uh, that are going to be coming up for these programs in the future. And today, I want to focus on what Medicare and Medicaid cover, um, how depending on these programs will impact your finances, the alternatives to these programs, and also what strategies are out there to address this issue. A little fact here is that seven in 10 married couples will have at least one spouse need care. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a betting person, and that's something that I would bet on, which means that we need to plan for this. And unfortunately, long-term care also impacts the children who are potentially you know, caregivers for their aging parents. And this is a tough discussion but one that we need to have and we need to start now. On the positive, uh, with proper planning, 
I think we can potentially avoid the burdens and the drastic financial decisions that this can lead to. My goal here is to you know, give you some information and to motivate you to start the conversation with your parents, their advisor, or you can also bring me into the equation. So let's get started and let's figure out how we can make this work. First question that I want to address is who needs long-term care? Right. So long-term care by definition is when you are not able to complete two of six activities of daily living. Activities of daily living include bathing, dressing, toileting, transferring, continence, or feeding. So if your parents are struggling with two or more of these, then they would qualify for long-term care. Now, I benchmark all my uh, advice on a couple of things here. One is age 80 is what I use as for when people would typically start to need care. That's not a say all, end all, but that's when I plan for, okay, age 80, all right, things might start to break down at this point. And also I benchmark uh, the average duration for the care is about three years. So the next question that we have here is, who will provide the care? Now, there's a few options here. The most common is the spouse, right? But the questions I have, and I talked to this about uh, this with my clients is, you know, first off, are they able to, right? Are they, you know, who knows which spouse is going to need the care or if both might need the care, but are they able to? Are they older? Are they younger? Uh, do they have the time? Uh, are they competent in that area, right? That's a big one. Second one is, what if they would need care at some point? Then their ability is is gone. And then the third one is, do you want them to? And this is a problem that I think persists with, with both child giving care and the spouses. It could be awkward, right? I mean, I don't, I would do a lot of things for my parents, but I wouldn't want to, right? And do would they want me to do that for them as well? That could be awkward. The uh, next person would be the child, right? But do they, do they have the time? I mean, Gen X, we're at the peak of our responsibilities in life, and we have so many things going on day to day. Can we add on taking care of our aging parents into that equation? And for most, it's no. They, they don't have the time. It's not they don't have the desire or willingness. It's just they don't have the time. The other problem is if, you know, do they live nearby? I mean, I live fairly close to my parents, but that's not always the case. So they may not even be able to. Again, we, you know, we just talked about, is it, is it awkward? Potentially, yes. And then lastly, are they willing? And, you know, sometimes your relationship's not that strong. So there's a lot of variables there. And then the last person who could potentially provide care would be a third party. And there are three potentials with a third party. They are in-home care, assisted living, and nursing home. And they all have different uh, levels of care. And I always ask people this. I say, all right, given the options of these three third-party providers, which one would you most likely want? Nine out of 10 say in-home care. 
there's always that one person who says, I want a nursing home because I want socialization. And I'm like, all right, that's cool. But most people want to stay in their home in a familiar setting, right? So, you know, there are providers that will come to your home and provide care. But just like anything else in life, we kind of graduate, I think, in terms of our level of need of care. So at first, you might just need in home care. You might just need a couple of hours of someone helping you do certain things. But then we kind of graduate, and then you might need assisted living, and then you might graduate further, and you need around-the-clock care. So those are the options for third-party. So we've talked about who qualifies long-term care and then who can provide the care. But now the meat of the discussion is going to be focused on how do we pay for this and what's the cost of care? So I did some research and these are all based upon Pennsylvania. Then these facts going forward may vary from state to state, but these are staggering numbers if you ask me. The average cost of a semi-private room in a nursing home in Pennsylvania is almost $10,000 per month. The average cost of assisted living in Pennsylvania is $4,500 per month. And the average cost of in-home care is about $4,900 per month, which is interesting. So assisted living or in-home care, roughly the same. And given the option of each, I think most people would choose in-home care. That's still almost $5,000 a month. And based upon these, on averages, I tell people that they can expect to spend about $300,000 for care per spouse. And that's after taxes. So as you can see, it's expensive. I think we know that. But now we know how much, just exactly how much we're going to be spending here. So what are our options to, to pay for this? And how do we attack this? This is a very interesting discussion. And I talk about this with my clients a lot. And it's really interesting, the, the phases of this discussion. At first, I'll ask them, then they, they get, I don't want to say defensive, but they, well, I'm not going to need this, right? They kind of feel like um, Gen X does when we don't need disability insurance. They feel invincible, like, I'm not going to need that care. Eh. I don't need this. It's too expensive, right? That's like the first reaction I get when I want to have the discussion. It's defensive. I don't need this. It's expensive. No, thank you. But when we, you know, I come back and I start looking at their finances, then they start to see the impacts. So the first option is which everybody thinks they can do, which is self-insure. And to self-insure, it can be an option but you really have to be of a certain net worth for it to be a viable option because you have to make sure that the uh, needs of the surviving spouse are going to be maintained and also any legacy planning that you've done will remain intact. What I mean by legacy planning, I'm talking about you know, leaving money to your kids. Most parents want to leave something to their children or you know, to a cause. And if you're going to self-insure, you have to make sure that all these are being considered because if not, then it's just wasted. The next option, which I'll tie these two in together, are, are Medicare and Medicaid. So if you're self-insured, I guess you could fall back upon these, but let's talk about why that's not such a great idea. 
I don't know if you know the, the specifics, but Medicare and Medicaid don't cover much. I did some math here and I did some research. Medicare, we all have Medicare for over 65. It will cover up to 150 days of coverage. And this is how it breaks down. Days one through 60, you only pay a $1,556 deductible. That's actually a pretty good deal. Days 61 to 90, now you're paying $389 coinsurance per day. And then it gets really expensive. Days 91 to 150 will cost you $778 of coinsurance per day. So if you add all that up for 150 days of coverage, you spent $59,876 or just about $400 per day, which is a horrible deal because that's above market rate. 400 times 30 is 12,000. So no way would you do that. If you're using Medicare, you might just use it for the first 60 days of your coverage because that's actually a pretty good deal. Outside of that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use Medicare. Medicaid is even worse. So to qualify for coverage, there's some pretty drastic things that are going to happen to your household finances. That's going to impact you. It's going to impact your, uh, your spouse. And it's going to impact your children because you're going to be required to spend down your assets. And these are what they call counted assets. And unfortunately, basically everything except your primary home, if you're married and your other spouse, I'm sorry, and your spouse is a non-applicant and up to 137,400 of these counted assets can be retained by your, let's stop. Let me rephrase that. Let me go back. I, uh, Okay. All right. So Medicaid will require you to spend down your assets. And this is pretty drastic. You're going to have to spend down what they call counted assets. And counted assets are basically everything except your primary home, if you're married, and only up to $636,000 of home equity. So if you've got a a nice house, you might be forced to, to sell it to, to reduce your home equity, right? Even your IRAs are counted assets and cash value life insurance is counted assets. The applicant for Medicaid is only allowed to have $2,000 of assets. The non-applicant spouse can retain 137400 or up to 50% of household counted assets. So if you have IRAs that are in excess of that, you're going to be forced to spend this down. On top of that, the applicant can only have monthly income of $2,523. And that's from all sources. That's social security, that's pensions, that's required minimum distributions, that's any other types of income that you get. That's it. And of that, only $45 of it per month is your allowance for personal items. And 
they allow you to pay your Medicare premiums. How, how generous of them. Everything else is going to pay for your pay. Now, fortunately, the non-applicant spouse, their income isn't impacted. Now, let's say the non-applicant spouse doesn't have an income and is dependent upon the applicant spouse for, for their uh, livelihood. They allow, and the non-applicant spouse is entitled to what they call a minimum monthly maintenance needs allowance. That's a mouthful. And that amount is $2,288. The maximum is $3,435. There's also a five-year look back on assets. If you think you can game the system and you're about to go on, you need, need help. If you think you can just give away your assets or you know have a big party or anything like that, that uh, government's got you. There's a five-year look back on assets. So anything like that that would happen within five years of you applying uh, is going to potentially uh, make you ineligible to qualify for Medicaid. And on top of the look back and the spend down of assets and the lowered income, they can actually take your house and it can be recaptured to cover your expenses. So as you can see, a qualifying for Medicaid to pay for your long-term care needs is pretty drastic and it's going to have a huge impact on your household. Huge. So how do we mitigate some of this? Because there are some strategies to reduce the pain that Medicaid can cause you on top of your need for long-term care, which isn't fun for anybody. So there are some rules here. First, you can actually use your assets that you have to spend down on home improvements, right? Maybe your house isn't worth $636,000. Maybe you say, oh, let's improve, let's, let's update the kitchen, let's update the bathroom, let's add a pool, let's buy a new house. Uh, there's some things you can do to, to maximize that allowance. Um, another thing you can do is buy a new or nicer vehicle because the primary vehicle for the household is not considered a counted asset. So if you ever wanted that dream car, maybe that's the time to, to consider that. You could also pay off debt. That's, that's a great strategy. Another one would be to purchase what they call an irrevocable funeral trust. That's basically uh, an amount of $15,000 that can be protected to pay for your funeral or in burial. One of the most advantageous strategies in this scenario is to purchase what we call a Medicaid asset protection trust. Now, to do this, you'd have to talk to an elder law attorney. I don't provide legal advice, but find a good elder law attorney. Now, to do this, there's some things that have to, to be in place. One is you have to do this outside of the five-year window. So typically, someone purchasing this would do so well in advance. You'd also want to be healthy and have no immediate need for care because this, this only works 
if it plays out for uh, five years. And it's set up as an irrevocable trust. So once you set this up, you can't change it, right? It's, it's locked in. So you are the trust maker and you have to name a trustee. It can't be a spouse, but it can be your adult child. So if you have a child who's responsible, they could be the trustee. You also cannot be the beneficiary because if you're the beneficiary, then you have access to the funds. You cannot have access to the funds. So once these assets go into the trust, you don't have access to them anymore. But what this can do is protect your assets from being spent down needlessly and then being recaptured from the government to pay for your care. Viable strategy. But again, I wouldn't look at doing this unless you had actual assets because there's costs associated with this, right? And another law attorney is going to charge you a fee. But by doing some advanced planning, you can protect your assets. So Medicare and Medicaid, when you look at them, and then we go back to my initial uh, discussion I have with my clients, I asked them, so you would not, you don't think you need help. So this is what, this is what you want to fall back upon is Medicare and Medicaid, right? You want to go through all of this. And then they say, well, no, I, I don't really want to do that, but, but no, I don't think I'll need it still. And then I start to, you know, talk to them about what if there was a, a better option, one that, um, didn't put you through this rigmarole and, and, and cause this potential pain. And then they say, oh, well, what, Michael, what are, you, what are you talking about here? And I say, well, there's another tool out there, which is life insurance. And they say, well, how can that pay for life for long-term care, right? Or I've heard of these policies and they're expensive and, you know, it's tough to qualify for them. And then if you don't use it, you lose all the money you paid into it. And my answer to this, to that is that may have been the case 15, 20 years ago, but the long-term care market has matured and gotten smarter and gotten more affordable. So there's really two options here that I talk to my clients about, and it really depends upon their needs. Uh, first part point I like to make is that this also requires advanced planning. And typically this discussion needs to be had and implemented between ages 55 to 65. Prior to 55, um, it might be premature, but I, I mean, you might be wanting to have that discussion, but typically it's 55, 65, because over 65, it starts to become, you know, more cost prohibitive. So there's really two Two options here. Uh, the first option would be to utilize a universal life policy, which is uh, permanent coverage. And you can add what they call a long-term care or accelerated death benefit rider. What that does, let's just say, for example, we're going back on my premise here that you need $300,000 um, for the average stay. So if you had a universal life policy with a $300,000 death benefit, your long-term care or accelerated death benefit rider would also be for $300,000, which would then grant you monthly access to 2% of that, 
per month or $6,000 tax-free. If you don't use it for long-term care, obviously you still have a $300,000 death benefit. So when you ultimately pass, that would go to your beneficiary. So it takes care of two needs. One, for, uh, for a person who wants to leave something to their spouse or their children. And second, if you're also concerned about long-term care, because ultimately, if you spent down an asset of $300,000, this would cover you know, the death benefit would be there for you um, to replace that. It's tax-free. A drawback is it's an annual premium typically. So this is something you would pay forever. So you have to make sure it's within your budget. Another option is a long-term care hybrid insurance policy. And I shy away from talking about product, but uh, I will talk about one here specifically, and it's Lincoln's Money Guard. I've used it quite often in my career. And how this works, it's similar to universal life, but there are some subtle differences here. Uh, first, typically I structure this as a 10 pay. So let's say you took this out at, let's just say at the end of the uh, you know, typical spectrum of 65 years age. So it'd be paid off by the time you're 75. So by the time you're 75, your long-term care is paid for. Now that's a burden off your chest, off your family's chest, and know that you're going to be able to pay for it. You can also, it, it really leverages your premium. Uh, I'm going to say that typically we're looking at, hmm, depending upon when you would take this out, I mean, it could cost up to $10,000 per year, but based upon the actual cost that I shared with you, that's pretty cheap. So you can add a COLA rider, cost of living adjustment rider onto this to, to further enhance the, the leverage. Uh, one of the other differences is that it's going to have a lower death benefit than a, uh, universal life with a long-term care rider. It's going to have a death benefit that is typically equal to the premiums that you've paid. So if you've paid in 120,000 into this over 10 years, the death benefit's probably going to be $120,000. Another benefit here that's different than the, uh, other policy is that, uh, you have access to cash value in the event of a surrender. Uh, you can either get 100% back of your money paid into it or 80%. 80% would offer a little more leverage, um, but a reduced uh, cash value in the event of surrender. So sometimes my clients like that because I say you really have three options here. One, you hold it, you pass away, your family gets back, which you put into a tax-free. You use it for long-term care, and that's obviously what you intended to do. Or let's say you change your mind in the future, whatever you put into it, which is nice from a liquidity perspective, because some people just think, what if, you know, what if situations change? And also, this policy will have easier underwriting than the universal life policy, because here we're only concerned about your morbidity. With the other policy, they're also concerned about your mortality, right? So you could have other health issues uh, and you still qualify for this and not the other. And what this ultimately, the life insurance will help you protect your assets and also allow you to retain control of your healthcare decisions. That's huge. I mean, when the government gets involved in almost anything, 
it's not going to be in your benefit. It's going to be in their benefit. And you're not, you're going to be able to pick your provider where you have, where you have, uh, you know, care provided to you, not what the government's going to tell you what you're allowed to have. Life insurance is a viable option for most households, as long as they can afford it within their budget. So as you can see, given the options of being self-insured, relying upon government programs such as Medicare and Medicaid, or taking control of it via life insurance, I think the life insurance is the most effective option. Even if you have the money and you can be self-insured, using life insurance, I think actually could save you money because you're leveraging your dollar for a future benefit. So as you can see, the earlier you have this discussion, the better. You know, the questions you need to ask yourself are how do you want to receive care and who do you want to provide it to you? And if your kids are a part of this equation, you've got to get them in on this equation. Or, uh, or if your parents haven't had this discussion or are kicking the can down the road, you know the writing's on the wall, you need to step up and start this conversation with them because this will impact you. Yeah, consider advanced planning. Get the, you know, if you're in between 55 and 65, have this discussion now. And it's also important to understand the rules of Medicare and Medicaid. You know, they're state dependent, they can change. So know the rules before you make a decision and understand how this is going to impact your finances. You know, by doing the legwork, the due diligence, you can avoid unnecessary burdens on your family and on your finances. So get your advisor involved, get your attorney involved. Uh, so in conclusion, I, I hope that this shed some light on the complexity of long-term care, the drastic decisions that can be avoided by advanced planning and how Medicare and Medicaid, yes, they will take care of it, but it's not what you want. Uh, and if you can avoid that scenario, that is where my advice is going to be. Uh, I always ask you to subscribe to the Gen X Money Advisor. And you can also check out my website, www.genxwealthpartners.com. And also follow and like me on Facebook and LinkedIn. I hope you learned something here today. And I wasn't trying to be Debbie Downer here, but it's super important. And I'm here to help. And as always, I thank you for listening and have a great day. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gen X Money Advisor podcast. Click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Gen X Wealth Partners. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services 
LLC, Kestra IS, member FNRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC, Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Gen X Wealth Partners is not affiliated with Kestra IS or Kestra AS. Views within the podcast are solely of Gen X Wealth Partners and are not necessarily the views of Kestra AS or Kestra IS.